All right. Well, I heard you all had some awesome teaching on faith last week, and I'm sure you've walked in it all week. I can just feel it being carried back into the room. Um, but today we're going to jump back into the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in chapter 6. And uh, Jesus, this is, this is how we know that Jesus spent 30 years as a human being before he taught this, this sermon. Because he's talking about what is it within us that motivates us to do what we do. And uh, he's talking specifically about a motivation for self-promotion, the motivation to be noticed, the, motiv the, the motivation to be relevant, to, have, to, to be somebody special to other people and to do what we do to try and somehow merit that specialness. And um, so he warns, this, this whole portion, these four verses, is his warning on our tendency to self-promote ourselves, knowingly or unknowingly. I mean, there are some of us who just, there are some, not some of us, but there are some who may unknowingly boast to promote themselves without even recognizing. It really means be careful. But Jesus says, take heed, which literally means be careful, that you do not do your charitable deeds which in the NIV doesn't say charitable deeds, it says acts of righteousness, before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So let's talk a little bit about human nature, because intrinsically, I think all of us at some time um, want to be liked. We want somebody to notice us. We want to have some some sort of epitaph that said our life mattered. And it starts when you're young. I mean, kids are always going, Daddy, watch me. You know, whether they're jumping into the swimming pool or they're riding a skateboard for the first time or they're drawing a picture or they're throwing a ball or they're whatever they're doing, it's not uncommon for kids to say, Daddy, watch me. Look at what I'm doing. It's not, it's not uncommon for teenagers to do stupid things to be popular. To, uh, to post things on social media. Whoever thought that that would be part of a sermon? But to post things on social media that are totally inappropriate, but are motivated by one thing and one thing alone, and that is to be liked. Um, the, to, to have someone just touch that little thumbs up to say, I like your post. And, um, you know... And, and what people think about us isn't altogether bad. I'm not, I'm not here by saying we should just be a nothing and disappear because there has to be something about us that draws people to Jesus. So there has to be something within our nature and our character that draws people to us that, that makes them want to ask questions. Um, it, it hasn't happened often in my life, but... Um, I remember once, we'd been married a few years, but I had, I had a, a job that wasn't where I spent most of my work time, but a, a young lady that worked for me, she just one day, out of the blue, we're all surrounded, she goes, okay, I just have to ask, how come you are always calm and happy? Now, first of all, I've never been called happy again in the next 30 years, so I don't know what she had for lunch, but 
I was able to share Jesus with her, and my wife and I eventually led her and her boyfriend, who became her husband, to Christ. I began to disciple them. And it wasn't because I was overtly doing something to draw attention to myself. There was just something about my demeanor that drew her to Jesus. Concerned, but people pleasers become overly concerned about what people think about them. And so Jesus is, is warning us not about doing evil. He's not warning us about doing bad things. He's warning us about doing good things to try and impress people, to try and draw attention to ourselves. And almost might sound like a contradiction because we've already looked, you know, um, in chapter 5, he said, let your light so shine before men to see your good works. Okay, but that isn't to draw attention to yourself that's to draw attention to God. The difference is motive. Or what you're doing, you're doing to, to say, look, here I am, look at me, like me, be my friend, you know, hang with me, eat lunch with me, or is it I'm doing everything because I want to draw people to an understanding of who Christ is. And it could be that I'm the only picture of Jesus they're ever going to get. I'm the only revelation of what walking with God and having a personal relationship looks like. So in that regard, we are to let our light shine before men. So when, when Jesus says acts of righteousness are not just obedience issues, they're, they're really lordship issues. Um, acts of righteousness is, you know, it, it's about doing things that matter that nobody is going to see. Doing things that don't draw attention to yourself, but that somehow present Jesus to people. You know, so be careful. Here's, what, here's what, how Webster defines to be careful. It says to be in a continuous state of readiness to learn from any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately. And so part of our responsibility is to look for need and to respond to need in other people's lives in an appropriate manner that does not draw attention to us, but instead it draws attention to Jesus, draws attention to God. And so we have to make sure that our aim is not for the recognition of men. We really want to make sure that our aim is for the recognition of our Heavenly Father. And here's the thing. We don't have to do it and go, Daddy, look at me, because he's always watching us. The, eye, the Bible says that God's eyes are always upon us and his ears are always open to us. So God's always looking at us. He's always listening to us. And so, you know, if we do our acts of righteousness before men, we have our reward on earth, but we have no reward in heaven. Our Father does not reward that. So he says, um, if you give secretly, he's going to reward your giving. When you pray... He says, go into your secret place and, and have your conversation with God. When you fast, wash your face. And we're going to get into that in the, in the other part of chapter 6. But he says, when you fast, wash your face. Put on your best clothes. Walk around like it's the best day of your life, not to draw attention to yourself. And these are just my thoughts. There's, here's four good reasons of why you shouldn't worry about what people think about you. Number one, people are fickle. You know, they can applaud you one minute, then the next minute they can tell everybody you're a jerk. 
Um, secondly, um, most people don't really care about you anyway. I, there, there's a saying I learned in high school, and um, I had this I had this math teacher that was just pretty raw, and he used to always say this. He says, "If you worry too much about what people think of you, you'd probably be disappointed to discover how seldom they did." And so, people don't care about you anyway. The most popular people are those who don't try to please other people. People don't talk about arrogant, look at me type people. They talk about the quiet, gentle, humble people that always seem to be there to serve and, and, and just kind of disappear into the crowd. You know, people who try too hard to please are often rejected. And the, the less conscious you are about being noticed, generally the more noticed you become. Um, and finally, um, there's really only one evaluation that we should be pursuing. Only one approval, and that's the approval of God. This is what Jesus said. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus' mantra was, I'm not here to bring attention to myself. I'm here to please my Father. Paul says this, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Think about that for a moment. Paul says, if I want to be popular among men, I should probably forget about Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is, people who reject God are going to reject you if you're presenting Jesus to them. So he goes on and he talks about being a hypocrite. He says this, therefore, and this is a key word in this verse, when. He doesn't say, therefore, if. He says, therefore, when... You do a charitable deed, act of righteousness. Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory for men. As surely I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. So when Jesus says when... You give, when you do a charitable deed, when you do an act of service, he says there's, there's, there's two things that we need to conclude. Number one, acts of righteousness are necessary. Acts of charitable deeds, acts of giving are necessary, or else Jesus wouldn't say if. He wouldn't make it an elective. He says when. So acts of charity... Acts of giving, acts of service are necessary. They're needed. Secondly, we should do it regularly. It should be a regular part of our life. Why do we make it a regular practice? Why, why do we make being generous, acting in righteousness, a regular part of our life as opposed to a planned event, as opposed to a scheduled thing? Paul says this. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, so Paul says our motivation should not be some sort of compulsion that I have some sort of quota to fulfill. 
I have a certain amount I have to give, a certain amount of time I have to give. It should be such a regular part of our life that there is no compulsion, that there is no guilt if we don't do it because it's such a regular part of us, it's how we live. It's who we are. It's what we become. So that way we avoid guilt and, and manipulation. And he says, don't announce it with a trumpet. Now, he, he, didn't, he didn't make that up. He wasn't kind of using, let me, let me think of an illustration. He was talking about what actually happens in the synagogue. The Pharisees and the wealthy who had a higher friendship with the Sanhedrin, with the council, they would literally sound a trumpet when they would bring and present their, their offering because they wanted everybody to know how much they give. They wanted everybody to see, look at how righteous I am. Look at how giving I am. Look at how good I am. And thinking about that, I, I come to one of, to me, one of the more profound um, stories in Scripture. And it's the story that Paul tells of the Macedonians. Pulls this out of the air. Corinthians, it's, it's really interesting because Paul just pulls this out of the air. He's not, he's not trying to teach them a point and then use the Macedonians as his proof text or his proof point. He, in fact, he had just finished commending the Corinthians for taking care of Titus. And uh, Titus, we know, was a disciple of Paul. He was also a spiritual leader because Paul does write him a letter, which is just before Hebrews. And in Titus, he tells Paul, he, in Paul tells Titus what the requirements of eldership are in the church as instructing Titus on how to lead the congregation that's following him. So out of the blue, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, this is his second letter to the Corinthians, he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, first of all, I love that he calls the Macedonians the churches of Macedonia. Paul addresses all of the churches in Macedonia as if they're one. I can't wait for a letter to be written that way about Azusa. That, that the church in Azusa is recognized as the church of Azusa, period. So he says, for in, now listen to these things, in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So here's what's going on. The Corinthian church, anybody who became a believer suffered consequences financially. Their businesses, their, their source of income, 
There was suffering. There was great persecution put on followers of Jesus. The Macedonians, if you remember, Paul had a dream called the Macedonian Call when he, he changed his journey and he went to the Macedonian churches and he preached and many came to Christ. And so these people that he's discipled, this is what he says their circumstances are. They were in a severe test of affliction. And, and yes, severe. So I'm trying to think, what is a severe test of affliction? I can honestly say I don't know if I've ever had a severe test of affliction. I've, I've had some testing, but I would be lying if I said it was a severe test of affliction. He said the abundance of their joy and their extreme poverty. He didn't say their poverty. He said their extreme poverty had overflowed into, not complaining, into a, a, a wealth of generosity on their part. So here's some things I conclude about how the Macedonians gave. Number one, they had the right attitude because for the Macedonians, giving was a matter of priority. It wasn't a matter of problems. In other words, the Macedonians had problems. They were in a severe test of affliction. They were in extreme poverty but they didn't let it affect their priority of giving. So they didn't let their, their, their affliction or their poverty affect giving. We're all going to have problems tied to finances. In fact, I would imagine as I say that, everybody in this room can think of one thing going on in your life right now that's tied to finances. Not in a positive way. There's always something about finances that raises up in our life. So we can't allow our problems to cloud our priorities when it comes to giving. The Macedonians didn't. They did not allow their problems to cloud their giving, their priority to give. Because for them, giving was a matter of willingness or faith. It wasn't a matter of wealth. The Macedonians gave out of extreme poverty. I don't know what you have to give out of extreme poverty. I, 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 in my mind, when I think of extreme poverty, I think of Malawi, considered the poorest nation on earth. I don't know how you have resources to give to be sent to another church that is going to somehow sustain and bless them. But the Macedonians did. We, we, th we think surviving financially means we need money. It doesn't. Surviving financially has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with faith and willingness to trust God. It has nothing to do with what you have. Remember, the Macedonians had almost nothing. It has to do with what you do with what you have. It's not about how much or how little, but what are you going to do with what you have and how are you going to use it for the kingdom? Because poor people can be financial failures. They can do little with little. Rich people can be financial failures as well. They can do little with much. But also, as the Macedonians prove, poor people can be financial successes when they are able to do much with little. And rich people can be financial successes because they are able to do much with much. 
So it's not about the amount, it's about the motive, it's about the heart. So giving is a matter of opportunity, it's not a matter of obligation. The Macedonians didn't give to the Corinthians because they were obliged some way to, to fulfill, to, to reciprocate something that had done for them. They gave because they had the opportunity to give, not because they had some sort of compulsion upon them that they had to give. And it says they begged for the opportunity to give. So this is how I picture it. They go and they say, excuse me, Pastor Paul, but you've just got to let me give. I'm begging you. I'm not going to leave you alone until you take this offering from me. That's, that's what it literally means there. If you go to the original language and it says they begged for the opportunity to give. A lot of you in this room in 45 we have some incredible givers. But I can tell you, in 45 years of pastoring, I've never had anybody beg me to give. I've never had somebody come up to you and say, please, 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 let me give again. Let me give again. Let me give more. Not that I've ever asked that or not that we work that way. But I've, I, I'm just trying to imagine what it looks like to have a group of impoverished people who are in extreme poverty, who... who come and they beg their pastor for the opportunity to give out of their poverty with, Paul says, an abundance of joy. Can I tell you, I have a hard time with an abundance of joy when everything's going okay. To have an abundance of joy in the severity of affliction, in the severity of poverty, and to be overcome with joy and to beg for the opportunity to give. See, our view, and let me just say our, I'll tell you Rick's view. Rick's view of surviving financially is if I have more, I'll give more. That's kind of how we measure it. Lord, I will gladly give more if you'll just give me a little. So give me a little more. Well, I'll reciprocate here. Okay? And so... The Macedonians believed God's promise of provision. They said, we don't have anything, but we're going to give anyway. We're, we're, we're broke, but we're going to find something somewhere. If, if I only have a cup of flour left in my house, I'm going to give half a cup away. I'm going to find something to give out of the great joy that I have of being a child of the king. So they gave themselves that because they had the right attitude, they did the right actions. Because Paul said, here's the first thing they did. And he said, listen to what he says. He says, and this is not what we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord. So these are people that settled the issue of lordship um, in their life. When Jesus is number one in your life, giving flows easily. Giving just flows naturally. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of your makeup. See, without lordship, stewardship becomes like paying taxes. Oh, I have to write my tithe check today, or I have to write a check to the church today, or I have to give this. You don't have to do anything. You get to. That's how the Macedonians saw it. They settled the issue of lordship. They love the Lord. When Jesus becomes your love... Um, I was out when I fell in love with my wife, which was easy to do. 
Um, I was a bachelor. I lived in a house with three other guys. Um, you know, basically, I lived on In-N-Out and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which, which are heavenly. Well, every now and then, uh, this will probably, you'll probably go, every now and then I went real extravagant and I did peanut butter, mustard, mayonnaise, and pickles on a sandwich, um, which don't knock it till you try it. I used to say, ooh, until I tried it. But anyway, that was my, but then I met this wonderful woman and I would go to work and she began to cook dinners. I didn't have to go and look for the bread, the white bread and the cheap Jiffy peanut butter and all that. And, but when dinner was prepared, there were vegetables in front of me. And I wasn't known as a vegetable eater. But because I loved her and she went to all the trouble to cook me vegetables, I began to eat vegetables. And I remember the first, well, not about the first time, but we were up with my parents. This is before we got married. And my mom's fixing a meal. And so my mom's dishing out plates. My mom's not putting any vegetables on my plates. And Janet starts putting vegetables on my plate. My mom goes, Rick won't eat those. And Janet goes, yes, he does. She says, he never ate those for me. Well, she eats them for, he eats them for me. The issue is love. See, once you fall in love, it, everything changes. You want to please the one you love. The Macedonians were deeply in love with Jesus. Their motivation was one thing, one thing alone. Paul says, two, we unexpected it. We didn't expect it. They gave themselves to the Lord. They said, okay, Jesus, this is all we have. Tell us what we can do to bless the church in Corinth. Tell us what we can do to bless people. So it says they gave according to their ability, but then he says this, and beyond their ability. So Paul says they didn't just give what they could afford to give. They gave more. Now, I... My mind's going, I mean, I don't know how you give more than what you have. But, but somehow they did. They gave beyond their ability. Because not only have they settled the issue of lordship, they settled the issue of love. You see, speaking of love. <laughs> you see, Jesus, Jesus calls those who do good things with selfish intentions hypocrites. And, and the word hypocrite literally means an actor who wears a mask. And before we became a culture enamored with actors and actresses, there were many times one person would put on a play production during this day and they, they changed their character by their mask. So be one person playing multiple characters, and the character he was playing was based upon the mask that he wore. And Jesus says people who give for the wrong reasons are hypocrites. They're putting on a mask, trying to make everybody think they're something that they're not. Someone who pretends to be something who in reality aren't like that. The Pharisees were like that. The Pharisees craved the praise and approval of men. They made a big show when they gave. 
They sounded the trumpets. They did everything. The Macedonians didn't. In fact, here's the truth. If Paul had not written this account in the letter to the church at Corinth, you and I today would never have known about what the Macedonians did. Probably when they're all anybody, nobody else mentioned a thing. In fact, the truth is probably when their offerings were received, because Paul is telling this in retrospect, they weren't even mentioned then. Blessings were given to a struggling church from people nobody knew. And then Paul sees the opportunity. It's the last time he's talking to the church at Corinth. He's walked them through a lot of their difficulties. And he says, I just, I just have to tell you guys about the Macedonians. Because if there's going to be a model on how to live your life and how to determine how much you give and what you give and when you give, I want you guys to remember the Macedonians and what they did for you. Because what they did for you, they did in the midst of extreme tribulation they did in the midst of extreme poverty and yet they had incredible joy and they not only gave they begged me to give to you and they not only gave according to what they had they gave beyond the ability that they had you know it's like that people still to this day love to give things for the approval of other people that's why we have so many buildings and universities named after people. You know, we don't call it the science building. We call it the Smith Science Building. You know, people give for recognition. People give, you know, you go to any hospital. You walk in the lobby, and there's a wall. And on the wall is the list of all the donors who have given a bunch of money. You know, colleges and universities, I mean, we've had this, if you haven't known, there's been this uh, college scandal about kids getting to school. And here's the interesting thing. Some of the amounts of money, millions of dollars, these parents spent to get their kids into school illegally. The newscasters all kept saying, look it, all they had to do was build a building and put their name on it, and their kids could have gone for free. I mean, what does that say? That is not a Macedonian heart. That's the type of heart Jesus is talking about. Doing something with our name on it for recognition so that somehow we get noticed and somehow we get an attaboy because we get a pat on our back. But Jesus raised the bar. He said, look it, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. We have this saying, you're like, he's my right hand man. You know, basically what Jesus is saying is don't even let your closest friend Know what you're doing when it comes to giving, when it comes to active service. Don't even let the person closest to you know. Now, if it's your spouse, um, they're not close to you. They are you. According to the Bible, you're one. So you, you give together. But don't let your best friend know what you've given, who you've given to, and how much you've given. You know, so don't dwell. Don't gloat over it. You know, don't call attention to your giving. Be satisfied with having no one know what you've done except God. Because again, Jesus doesn't say if you give. Jesus says when you give. Um, and helping to meet other people's needs was not just the mark of the Macedonians. I, I want to read to you what this Greek philosopher, Aristides, wrote in defense. This is not a Christian this is a Greek philosopher defending Christians to the Roman Empire, Hadrian. And this is what he says normal Christians do. He said, he who has 
gives to him who has not without grudging. When one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them sees him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs, and if it is possible that he may be delivered, they will deliver him. If there is any among them a man that is poor or needy, and they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy. A Greek philosopher now, that's how a Greek philosopher understood Christians in defending them to the Romans. That if they had nothing to give and they knew their friend was hungry, they themselves would fast for two or three days, save that food they would have eaten, and give it to the one who has nothing. See, our motivation needs to be that we seek the approval of the audience of one. Everything we do should be for the approval of God. And again, not that we have to say, hey, God, look at me. Did you see what I just put in the offering? Did you see the money I just gave that poor person? Did you see that? Because he always does see. In fact, he's looking at our hearts constantly. He's always looking to see who we are, and he measures who we are by what we do. Our salvation is not based upon works. Jesus did everything, but our rewards, our eternal rewards, are based upon our works, our acts of righteousness. Those are the works, acts of righteousness. So Jesus says, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So Jesus says, it's not me, it's my father your heavenly Father, who by the spirit of adoption has called you sons and daughters of the Most High, my Father is going to reward you, not by just slipping you something going, here, good job, but in front of everybody, he is going to reward you for what you've done. There is a legitimate reward motive in the Christian life. There's a, there's a used to be a TV ad, I don't know if it's on anymore, but it's this athlete who's in a football stadium, and he is running the stairs. Now, when I was in high school, we had to run the stairs for track. And running the stairs was hell. That there was anything we would rather do. We'd rather one run wind sprints than run the stairs. It is hard. And in this commercial, this kid's just running up and then running down, running up, then running down, and there's nobody there watching him. There's nobody there with a stopwatch. There's nobody there pushing him. He's doing it on his own. And he's doing it so they can win the reward of the game on the weekend. He's not doing it for somebody to see, look what I do, look how hard I work. He was looking for the reward of his work when he would play the game. God asks us to discipline our lives. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. See, it's, we're saved by grace, not by works, but we're rewarded for our works. And, and the Bible's promise of this, it's, it's kind of, 
You can't try and figure it out because we get stars in our crown, according to Scripture. We get crowns. We get stars in our crowns. And then after we get all rewards, we take them and we throw them at the feet of God. So, I mean, we are just overcome with his presence that we don't even want the reward. All we want is him. We'll be there and say, I don't want the crown. I want you. I don't want the stars. I want you. I don't care if I have, if they have more stars than me or I have more stars than them here. Take it back. All I want is you. All I need is you. You know, Scripture says, in the presence of the king, we'll cast our crowns before him. And, and the truth should change our attitude about what we're doing today because we are rewarded. If nobody sees, he does. And that was Jesus' point. We're not doing it for the approval of each other. We're not doing it so people can say, hey, have you seen him? Have you seen, you know, what he gives? Have you seen what she does? Have you seen how she does this or how he does that? No. There are scriptures that promise reward commiserate with the faithfulness that we have here on earth. This is what Jesus says. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with all his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Paul says this, first when he writes to the church at Ephesus, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. When he writes again to the church at Corinth, this is the first letter, not the second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, meaning the day of the Lord, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So our salvation is not based upon what we do, but our rewards in heaven, our rewards from our heavenly Father are based upon what we do, and they're going to be tested by fire. And he says there's going to be works that are gold, silver, costly stone, and there are going to be works that are wood, hay, and stubble. All of the works are going to be piled together. God's going to put his fire to it. And when the fire's done, whatever's left is going to be rewarded. And we know that fire cannot consume stones, gold, silver, precious stones. But we know that fire can consume wood, hay, and stubble. And so what Paul is saying is we cannot be minimalists when it comes to doing service in the kingdom, acts of righteousness. The church in Macedonia, it wasn't about how much they gave. It was about what they gave and what their motivation was. And when those acts of the Macedonians are tested in the end by the fire of God, they're going to come across as gold, as silver, as precious stone. But the Pharisees, all that they did, the great amounts they gave with all their pomp and circumstances, they'll go on the pile too if they accepted Christ as Messiah. And those works are going to be tested by the same fire and there'll be nothing left and they will have no eternal reward. They'll have salvation, which, hallelujah, <laughs> you know. 
They're not going to be consumed by fire, but there'll be no reward for them. Understand that the reward the Heavenly Father promises is not just eternal, it's also immediate. Because as we become givers, God gives back to us. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed beg for bread. You cannot, and this is such a cliche to say, but it fits, you cannot outgive God. You want to get in a giving war with God? Go for it, because he wins every time. Not a, not a bad fight to lose. Watchman Nee, who was a uh, Chinese pastor who was eventually killed for his faith, he was an incredible writer, uh, an incredible preacher. They ripped his tongue out so he couldn't preach anymore, so he started writing. So they cut off his hands so he couldn't write anymore. Um, and his books still stand today. Um, great study in the book of Ephesians, sit, walk, and stand. Um, but one of his sayings in one of his books is this, I have never met a soul who set out to satisfy the Lord and has not himself been satisfied. I have never met a soul who set out to satisfy the Lord, tongue ripped out, self has not been satisfied. This is a man who had his tongue ripped out, had his hands cut off, was eventually martyred for the gospel, and that's his position. In these last days, our Heavenly Father designed us to play a role that doesn't get much applause. It's behind-the-scenes assignment where we're to find our contentment in serving others, where we're to find our identity in acts of righteousness along with watching out and guarding our heart from being a people pleaser, we also have to guard ourselves from being a self pleaser as well. Um, the both are kind of the same magnitude. Our motive must always be to covet the approval of one, Abba, our Heavenly Father. Don't just be a tither, be a giver. Give to the poor, give to the needy, give to the missionaries, give to the hungry person on the street. Don't ever stand there and try and assess if they're necessary or if they're going to misspend your money or if they're worthy. We give in the name of Jesus because those are the acts that will eventually touch people's heart. And so I just encourage you to let your epitaph be when you stand before the Father and he begins to judge your works. May the result after your works are tested by fire, may it simply be said, he or she was a giver. They gave of themselves. They gave of their money. Because that's what the Macedonians did. They gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us, and then they gave out of the depth of their poverty and beyond their ability to give, they gave. So we give ourselves to the Lord, we give ourselves to community, and we give ourselves to others outside the community. We have opportunities. You, you, if you want to come help feed and serve the homeless on the river, by all means, you can come and help do that. But if you can't do that because you work, you can have just as much impact by putting change or loose dollars in the offering plate. 
You know, you may not be able to go to Malawi, but you can participate in ministry in Malawi by giving to little Wandes. And so if we look at giving not by what we can afford, but by who we serve, may our priority not be amount, but may it be a servant heart to where we give out of the depth of our love for Jesus and we give beyond our ability, and may we never have the mindset that says, God, if you give me more, then I will give more. So, Father, we thank you uh, for your word that it's true. We thank you, Jesus, that we have never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed beg for bread. We thank you that your word says that every promise in Jesus is yes and amen. So be it. So, God, I'm praying that this little house, this little place in the middle of downtown Azusa, God will be known for its extreme giving out of the midst of poverty. God, that we never judge what we can give by what we have, but we judge by what we give by how much we love you. And Holy Spirit, just constantly remind us that. And let us remember that if we've given all that we can give, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ if we can't give more. That it's all about our heart. Where is our heart set? Because your word says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It also says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So God, may we be blessing speakers. May we be blessing givers. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at that. Look what I gave you. I gave you 13 minutes. How generous is that? Huh? I am a giver. Yeah. Yeah, you have time to be a giver. Fill the plate. All right, don't forget the open house. What time does the open house start, Sonoya? What time does the open house start? Oh, you're going to ask Wendy. 